Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Christian Biographies podcast. Today's episode, I will be answering the question, were the Protestant reformers deconstructionists? That is, are they like, are the deconstructionists of today, those who are within the deconstructionist movement in Christianity, are they uh, doing what the Protestant reformers did, or are they doing something else? And if so, how are they different, or how are the Protestant reformers different from them? That is mainly what I will be addressing today. So not a specific uh, person within church history like I did with the first episode with C.S. Lewis, but I will be addressing a few specific uh, Christian individuals around the time of the Protestant Reformation to help get an understanding of why, uh, help get, get, give an understanding of why the Protestant Reformers were not uh, deconstructionists. The reason I wanted to address this topic is because partly I came across it on Facebook when someone I know posted an article arguing that the Protestant Reformers were uh, like the deconstructionists of today. They're just supposedly correcting their faith. Now, it is true that the Protestant Reformers sought to correct the true faith of the original Twelve Apostles and the early church. However, that is not the same thing as deconstructing your faith. Because when you actually look at what deconstructionism is, it is, in fact, a movement that does not base... It does not base what it does off of scripture or church history. What it does, in fact, do, though, it argues that, or it treats the individual as the ultimate standard of what it means to ha- define the Christian faith, both historically and theologically. When you look at deconstructionists and how they talk about the Christian faith, they have a very, you see that they have a very postmodern mindset that everything, where they treat everything as relative to what they want or think or what they believe is true and right. But, and what they believe is true and right is based upon what the individual says, based on what they as the individual say, not based on what the church has taught historically or theologically since its conception. Part of why I am addressing this topic is not only because I see a need for this to be addressed with regards to the theology of the Reformation, but also the history of the Reformation. It's important that when we look back to the past, we don't assume that the historical figures we look at are just going to are just going to agree with what we believe or that they or that we can assume that they were just doing what we're doing or that we're doing the exact same thing as them. We actually have to look at what they did, study the nature of what they did, and see, is that the same thing as what we're doing, or are we doing something different? And that's something that I think is easily neglected in the study of history. We like to assume that what we're doing is the same thing as what was done in the past, but the reality is very much different from that. The other thing to keep in mind is that church history matters because if we want to understand 
the the direction that the church is going in right now we have to understand the direction it was going in before now and that involves not only studying the theology of the past but also the hist- the history of what happened in the past the events the people the places of what took place why it happened how it happened why is it important to understand how it happened and when you look at deconstructionism they kind of throw all of this out the window because their interest is less in looking at what happened and what we're supposed to be doing objectively. Rather, it's just based ultimately on the personal preferences of the individual. The thing I want to discuss first before getting into the specific figures I'll be discussing for this episode is um, to talk about historical Christian orthodoxy. Now, when I say orthodoxy, I'm not referring to uh, East, Eastern Orthodox uh, Christians. I'm referring to general orthodoxy, which means holding... I'm referring to Christian orthodoxy, which means holding to what is traditionally correct and proven true ideas and concepts about the religion of Christianity, the scriptures, and Christian doctrines. And the other thing I wanted to define, not just orthodoxy, but but also historical orthodoxy. Historical, I just so I just defined orthodoxy. Next, historical orthodoxy, meaning what is traditionally right and proven true concepts about the religion of Christianity, the scriptures, and it, and Christian doctrines throughout the history of the Christian church. And the reason I highlight this is because the Protestant reformers were after the true apostolic faith, and traditions that were held by the apostles and the early church fathers. Um, one of the most important uh, sayings from the Reformation, not just the five solas, but also um, another phrase that sometimes is forgotten is the Latin phrase um, ad fontes, which means to the sources. Now, their highest source, their highest authority on matters of faith, doctrine, and practice was, of course, the scriptures. However, the Reformers considered the early church fathers and theologians uh, very highly. They had a high regard and respect for them, and they believed that the Catholic Church had gone astray and was not pursuing the teachings of the original apostles or the early church fathers. They believed they were pursuing something that scripture nor church uh, tradition actually taught. They, they believed that the Catholic Church at the time was pursuing what scripture nor church tradition, which is based off of scripture, had taught historically. And they wanted to return to that or reform the church to pursue that. They wanted to correct the church in order to pursue that more accurately. Next part is the Protestant reformers that I will be discussing and how they're different from what you would call deconstructionists today. Um, I'll be discussing John Knox, Young Comenius, John Calvin, Martin Luther, and William Tyndale. Um, John Knox, he was a Presbyterian Scottish minister who dedicated his life to the Reformation in Scotland. And part of his under, and part of his understanding and realization was that um, that the Catholic Church had gone astray. Like, many of the Reformers had realized this. But 
the reason they dedicated their lives to Reformation was because they wanted to, again, return to the true apostolic faith of the original apostles and that faith that was inherited by the early church fathers and also uh, be in agreement with the early church fathers on doctrine, uh, teaching, and faith practice. So John Knox spent much of his time dedicated to the Reformation in Scotland. I won't be elaborating about uh, the Reformation in Scotland or John Knox here because I do want to dedicate a specific episode to him. However, he was a staunch defender of the Reformation and a strong advocate of the scriptures as the highest authority for faith and practice. Not only that, he believed that while it's true that the church said that tradition is important, it was the scriptures that authorized that tradition as valid and true. The next figure I'll talk about is um, Jan Comenius, which can also, his first name can also be translated as John Comenius. But his original name is Jan Amos Komensky, but English for him for his last name is Comenius. Um, John Knox lived from 1514 to 1572. He died about 20 years before Comenius was born. Comenius was born in 1592 and lived until 1670. Um, Jan Comenius, another um, important reformer in the Protestant Reformation, he was a part of the church known as the Unity of the Czech Brethren or the Moravian Church or the Unity of the Brethren. They were known by multiple names, but that church had traditionally had a strong focus on education, and that was actually the main focus of Jan Comenius's writings in life. Um, he desired that every man, woman, and child of every ethnicity of every ethnicity and nationality be given quality education under the Christian faith under the and by that he meant under the doctrines teachings and overall practice of the Christian faith that was something uh that was important to his education sometimes um uh modern scholars will try to um and this is something that modern scholarship will do with the Reformation in general is that they will sometimes, you know, put aside the theology or try to, you know, minimize it. But the reality is you can't understand the Reformation or its reformers without uh, theology, without the significance of theology. And Jan Comenius would spend much of his life dedicated to the subject of theology and education. He actually would, and he also studied philosophy and he studied education philosophy. In fact, he actually exchanged letters with the Enlightenment philosopher René Descartes, which is who is the guy who said, I think, therefore I am. I would love to do a more uh, in-depth look at Jan Comenius, uh, Jan Hus, and the Czech Brethren in general, so I'm not going to discuss them in depth here, but the I'll summarize briefly a little bit more about Jan Comenius's life. So, lived from 1592 to 1670, so he lived during the latter portion of the Reformation. And he was also alive during the era of the scientific revolution, which was important for not just science, but also philosophy and education. So Jan Comenius was born during a time which his ideas would be 
would be better received by the larger public, which did end up happening because many of his ideas uh, were fruitful and beneficial that several European nations asked him to come to their country and help reform the schools. The next figure is I'll highlight is John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564. Um, his Institutes of the Christian Religion are considered a classic of the Christian faith, and it helps summarize the most important tenets of the Christian faith. And it's been one of the most important works of Christianity probably of the past few hundred years, arguably. That and John Calvin was very influential in the reformation of the city of Geneva, where he resided and was, at certain points, a pastor at a church there. Next up is Martin Luther, who lived from 1483 to 1546. Uh, Martin Luther, who's considered, like, while there were other quote-unquote reformers before him who resisted the Catholic Church, like Jan Hus, he is considered uh, the, I think he's considered the spark of the Reformation because he's the one who is most openly against the Catholic Church's, the Catholic Church's teaching on purgatory, their view of salvation, their teachings on, on indulgences, and several other things. Uh, Martin Luther argued that justification by faith alone was overshadowed and neglected in the teachings of the Christian church. Because when he read the scriptures and looked at church history with the early church fathers, theologians, when he looked across scripture, tradition, and history, he saw that justification is by faith alone and that works uh, cannot actually save us in the sense that they cannot justify us. They contribute to our sanctification, but that is ultimately because Christ uh, did good works without sin. So our works only have meaning because Christ, who came before us, did good works and did them without sin. The, ne the final figure I'll briefly address is William Tyndale, who lived from 1494 to 1536. Now, um, John Wycliffe, who's considered the morning star of the Reformation, so he's considered like one of the early starting points and one of the most significant starting points of the Protestant Reformation in Europe, and especially in England, because he was English. Um, he, before William Tyndale tried to do this, uh, Wycliffe actually tried to translate um, the Bible into English, but the Catholic Church had made that illegal across Europe to translate the Bible into a common language that the people could understand, which helps make sense of their tyranny because if they controlled how, if they controlled uh, the reading and teaching of the scriptures and they only did it in a language that the people couldn't learn, then they could, then they could control um, what what uh, the people perceived to be true, right, and good. They could control what people perceived 
as what the Bible taught rather than what the Bible actually taught and what the church actually historically taught about the scriptures and tradition. But William Tyndale actually was successful in translating the Bible into English. However, he was later persecuted for this, and this is around the time of 1536 when he died. Yet he remained faithful to the end and was killed for the fact that he did not recant what he did and did not recant his views because he was willing to risk his life to make sure that the common people could understand the scriptures church his and church history and tradition so that they could understand it for themselves without the tyranny of the papists. And the reason I highlight all of these figures is because they all played a significant role in the Protestant Reformation. Obviously, there's more than just these men, but I wanted to highlight these uh, few examples because they're the ones that I generally am more familiar with, as well as the fact um, that um, in connecting and helping people understand how they are not at all like today's deconstructionists. Because today's deconstructionists, again, they treat the individual as infallible in interpreting scripture rather than scripture as infallible because you're meant to interpret scripture by scripture, not interpret it not interpret um, the infallibility of Scripture from human authority, but from scriptural authority. And because, and the logical conclusion of treating every individual interpreter as infallible um, means that if you treat all, every individual interpreter as infallible, then that means contradiction is inevitable. And some might say that of the Protestant reformers, when in reality the Protestant reformers didn't contradict one another. They had disagreements over important issues like uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. This was actually something that the Lord's Supper, the view of it, was something that um, Ulrich Zwingli and Martin Luther could not connect on. And this is part of what hindered the Protestant Reformation is that they couldn't present as well of a united front because Zwingli and Luther couldn't agree on the Lord's Supper, uh, on their view of the Lord's Supper, and how it was a means by which we receive God's grace. But aside from that, while there were some theological disagreements amongst the Reformers, they generally had the same ideas about what was needed in order to reform and correct the true church of Jesus Christ. And that's something that is kind of overlooked when studying the history today. And it's something that's overlooked when you evaluate, when people study uh, the Protestant reformers and compare them to today's deconstructionists. Also, deconstructionists uh, will tolerate contradiction for the sake of peace and unity. Whereas the Protestant reformers, at least some of them, would tolerate disagreement for the sake of unity over the most essential truths, like salvation, the Trinity, the authority of Scripture, etc. And while peace and unity are important for Christianity in general, uh, deconstructionism does not define them in accordance with the standard of Scripture. Because again, the individual 
is the human person is the ultimate uh, standard of authority in interpreting scripture rather than scripture itself. And deconstructionism also claims to be about correcting Christianity when in reality it actually draws uh, people who are Christians closer to heresy by throwing out the standard of historical orthodoxy. Now, while that standard has to submit to scripture, that standard more often than not is always in line with scripture. It is always in line with the standard of scripture, the historical teachings of the church, as well as in general church tradition. Now, having introduced uh, deconstructionism, how it seeks to interpret scripture and really the history of the church, as well as discussing a clear definition of orthodoxy, historical orthodoxy, and highlighting a few of the Protestant reformers and how they were objective about the faith. Um, I'm going to answer the question, what is deconstructionism? Deconstructionism, uh, to briefly state, is a new form of heresy which seeks to make itself appear as though it is true, genuine, and pure. Again, all three of those, truth, genuineness, and purity, are important to the Christian faith and important for having a biblical sound faith, a biblical sound Christian faith. Yet, deconstructionism perverts all of these and does not base its understanding of those things in the scriptures. Well, all three of those things are, again, important for Christianity by they're clearly defined in scripture, which deconstructionists will not do or do not do well. Deconstructionists carelessly play around with scripture as though the book can and ought to be used to affirm personal beliefs about gender, sexuality, ethnicity. I should say not just personal, but also um, uh, modern cultural beliefs about gender, sexuality, and ethnicity. Again, scripture, uh, church theologians in history have all addressed these in a way that is honoring to God and honoring to the authority of Scripture, and they're important to address, but deconstructionists will pervert these in order to affirm what the culture is currently saying. And that's also part of the problem of deconstructionism, is that it is hard for it to actually be objective about any given topic related to God's authority as, re as it is revealed in his word, because it's all about what do I get to decide about what scripture says? How do I get to cherry pick what scripture says is true instead of, you know, actually saying what scripture says is true? Um, again, scripture and historical church theologians, they address all these topics that I have uh, I've d discussed, but not with the individual as the highest authority. That's the thing. Individuals can address theological topics and church historical topics, but not with the individual as the highest authority because God's word is the highest authority because only God's word, which is divinely breathed out by him, is infallible and inerrant. The reformers sought to correct the Christian church at a high cost, sometimes to the point of giving their lives. And I did highlight one who gave his life, William Tyndale. Well, Martin Luther, and I'm surprised he wasn't um, killed uh, 
for what he did, he... I'm surprised he wasn't killed for what he did. Or he wasn't persecuted to the point of death for what he did. But he lived uh, until he he died. I don't know if it was a sickness or natural or natural causes, but he died without being killed for, or persecuted to the point of death. Um, Willing Tyndale, of the ones I highlight, was the only one who died, who was persecuted to the point of death. Um, deconstructionists tear down the church, so reformers sought to correct the Christian church at high cost, sometimes to the point of giving their lives, but deconstructionists tear down the church some of who've intent, some of them intending this, and all of it, whether they intend to tear down the church or not, at the cost of leading God's people astray. And the fatal flaw that deconstructionism, of deconstruction, uh, bleh, sorry, that can become a difficult word to say if you say it multiple times over. So the fatal flaw of deconstructionism. Is, the, is one of the arguments it makes is that uh, Christianity is, or that uh, the, the religion of the reformers is man-made. It's, and it's like, well, the same can be argued about your religion of deconstructionism. It can be same, the same argument that you say that, oh, they were just making, it was just man-made religion. Well, the same can be argued about your beliefs and religion. So if ultimately uh, true religion is a matter of, is, a sub, is ultimately a subjective matter, then we're just going to swirl around in a circle of subjectivity and neither one of us is actually going to win the other over. We're just both going to uh, remain in a, we're just going to swirl around in this whirlpool of subjectivity until one of us decides to hop out and realize wait there is an objective Christianity that can be evaluated from church history and not just the early church not just medieval church not just the reformers but all of church history from when it began with Jesus in the gospels till now all of church history all of church theology can be evaluated objectively from the standard of scripture and from the standard of true church teaching which is under the authority which is also under the authority of scripture or is and is in alignment with it that's the thing that deconstructionists do not take seriously is for one i mean the authority of the church that of what god has given it and you could say well the reformers didn't take church authority seriously no they did because they went back, as I said before, ad fontes, the Latin, their Latin phrase for meaning to the sources, while the highest, why the most important source they used was scripture because it's the highest authority, they also sought out church theologians and preachers from church history who were in alignment with what scripture taught. And some of the and many of some of those figures were in fact the early church fathers theologians and if you want to say well the reformers were deconstructionists you would actually logically have to conclude by the deconstructionist logic that the early church fathers were also deconstructionists because they oh you could say they were trying to deconstruct from paul 
and the original apostles, but they weren't. They were never trying to do that. They were trying to strengthen and keep the church unified under the truth of God's word. That's what they sought to do, especially in a time where, especially in the first couple centuries of the early church, they were persecuted for doing just that, for resisting the tyranny of the Roman government because Christianity said, Jesus is Lord, and the Romans told them Caesar is Lord, but they refused to do that. They refused to do anything that would show their loyalty to Caesar apart from respecting his authority as a political figure that God had ordained to be in power. They respected his authority as a political figure, but they did not see him as Lord because in order for them, if they had done that, that would basically then, that would basically mean that they are saying that Caesar is God, but Caesar is not God. Caesar is not the Lord of Lords. He is not a God because Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And again, deconstructionism can't hold itself together because ultimately it will deconstructionists will circle around in a whirlpool of in a whirlpool of in a whirlpool of subjectivity until they realize through conviction of sins by God's grace that what they are talking about that the way they are talking about the Christian faith is foolish and ungodly that is the only way that they will be able to escape that cesspool of subjectivity is by realizing that the way they have been talking about the Christian faith is unorthodox, unbiblical, ungodly, and it puts them as Lord over the scriptures rather than recognizing who is the one who embodies the scriptures perfectly, and that is Jesus Christ. Because what they're doing the way they're treating the scriptures is saying, no, I know better than Jesus. I know better than God. When And that was never something the Reformers intended. That was never something that the early church fathers or the apostles ever intended. That was never something that true biblical Christians who hold to, that hold to the true teachings of scripture ever intended. Because that means we're replacing God with the individual. That is it for today's episode. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed putting this topic together and compiling uh, my notes in order to discuss this topic uh, well. I hope you are blessed by it, and I will see you in the next episode.